There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to My Perfect Console. I'm Simon Parkin and in each episode I invite a guest to pick the five video games they would like to immortalise on their very own fictional games machine. Perhaps it was the first game they received as a birthday present or the one that so obsessed them it caused them to fail their exams or maybe it was the only thing that got them through a difficult breakup. Games a bit like songs often become powerfully attached to a particular moment in our lives. When we return to them, they can become warp points to the past. So join me, Simon Parkin, for my perfect console. My guest today is a video game critic and one of the most exciting new voices in science fiction writing. Born in Newcastle-upon-Tyne, she graduated from the UEA with a degree in English Literature with Creative Writing in 2019. And since then, she has worked as a freelance critic, contributing to Edge magazine and Eurogamer, and with the game publisher Future Friends, part of the team that helped bring you indie hits such as Vampire Survivors, Cloud Gardens and Heaven's Vault. She recently published her debut novel, Frontier, a sci-fi western set in the distant future when climate change has returned the earth to a desert wasteland ruled over by gunslingers and horse thieves. Frontier is a tale of love, loss and laser guns. And my guest is currently working on a second book, also for Hodder and Stoughton, described as the Grand Budapest Hotel in Space. Welcome, Grace Curtis. Hi Simon, how are you doing? Hi Grace, really well thanks. How are you? Uh... <laughs> Very jet lagged. Yeah, I'm. I'm okay. But... So you just got back from the game developers conference in San Francisco. Is that right? Yes, I have. I, I got back on Monday. I think it was. I, it was very weird. I left on Sunday night and I got back on Monday morning, and my body is still kind of in chaos internally. <laughs> All right. Was it the first time you've been to that conference? Yes. Yeah. It was. It was my uh, my first time. So tell me. Yeah. What was it like? Because I think it's uh, you know it's sort of it's been going for I don't know thirty years or something now, but it's like the big annual get together for people who don't know of the games industry's movers and shakers. <laughs> was it as exciting as that makes it sound? It was. Well, I I feel terrible saying that because um, there's been one of one of the conversations around GDC this year has been that it's quite exclusionary, which I can definitely see. It's in an unbelievably expensive city unbelievably far away right but um you know there was undeniably something quite magical about it about you know i i was wandering around and i was right. spotting people who are like you know heroes of mine and it was such a great energy in the air oh, yeah it felt like a it felt like kind of an amazing accumulation to get to this place and sort of you know see all these people in person and actually see gaming as something physically happening with human beings involved and not just a, a magical process coming out of my laptop 
<laughs> Especially, I guess, like after coming out of the pandemic as well, where everyone's been remote, it's just, you know, games are already quite detached, aren't they? So, and then to have a pandemic as well. So, yeah, it must be nice getting together. Did you, what was your favorite uh, talk that you went and saw? Oh, that's tough. Um, you know, I could, I could be nice because there were, t- there were talks given by friends of mine, but I'm going to have to be brutally honest and say the Kirby talk. It was incredible. <laughs> I, uh, it was called something like the many, the many dimensions of Kirby or Kirby in all dimensions. But it was basically just the uh, the Kirby developers explaining that they had a complete nightmare creating the game because he's too bloody round. And it's just like you'd think you'd think it's a simple problem to solve, but it in fact, you know, this 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 minor issue created so many more. And uh, yeah, they just did it with such a such a sense of like fun and glee. These these quite serious seeming Japanese businessmen who then you know. <laughs> We're actually just oh, big kids on the inside, you can tell. Uh, yeah, I enjoyed that one so much. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah, I feel like, um, you know, Kirby, maybe, you know, I, I loved the Kirby game last year. I thought it was so good. But it's also, it's not like Nintendo's, like, flagship property, right, is it? So Not at so- all. <laughs> it feels like it really has its own identity. Which, part of what I really enjoyed, like, Kirby has so much more going on yeah. compared to, like, what's Mario's deal? I don't care. He could be anyone. But Kirby's like this little guy. <laughs> He's pink, he's round, <laughs> you know, he's ever so round. Yeah. Oh, it's fantastic. He's I, problematically round, apparently. <laughs> problematically problematically spherical, yeah. In 2D space, it's fine, but in 3D, yeesh. Uh, no, I, I enjoyed that a lot. It was it was a great example of, like, problem solving in real time, part of what makes game developers seem like wizards to me. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So nice. Yeah, I meant, I, one year, I, I didn't go this year, but a few years ago, they had the lady who... I can't remember if she's director or producer on Animal Crossing, whichever the big one, what Animal Crossing was on Switch. And, uh, well, maybe it was before that came out. Anyway, um, amazing to see some of these people who, you know, sort of feel like, like you say, uh, magicians locked away in castles. And then suddenly, <laughs> every- there was definitely, yeah, there was definitely an air of like reverence in the room. I, could tell, I was just kind of went out of like curiosity, but there were people there who were like, totally awestruck and having the time of their lives and yeah it was lovely oh that's great so grace you are you are incredibly young catastrophically young i would say <laughs> i apologize <laughs> and, uh, no which is great but i'm interested because you are also an excellent writer and i really have enjoyed your writing on video games as well Well, thank you but uh, you know it's quite unusual i think these days for a young person to want to write about video games you know especially when it is apparently or seems easier to make your way as a YouTuber or a streamer or something like that. What, uh, what you know, what was it that made you particularly want to write about games when many of your peers have sort of given up on that hope? <laughs> <laughs> well, I tried the YouTube career and I realised that editing videos is a lot of work. <laughs> That's what, uh, uh, that, was, that was the thing initially, I think, during the first lockdown. I kind of, uh, I was on furlough from my pub job and I decided to make a go at it as a kind of games media person. So I made I made a whole YouTube video essay and it took me weeks and weeks and weeks and the whole thing came out. It was 15 minutes long and I had to listen to the sound of my own voice for hours and hours. And I just thought, you know what, I'd rather I'd rather just write something. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's yes. what I'm good at. That's what I'm comfortable with. And no, no, no. yeah, I, I, I got lucky. I was able to kind of hit upon a vein of people who were sort of willing to give me a shot. But yeah, I think it, I, I, I think influencing is a lot more work than it appears obviously games is not easy either but um, sure that's what i ended up with just because it felt like it came more naturally to me you know so that first uh, youtube video did, you did was that sort of along the lines of those long form youtube critics or was it a bit more what, what was the sort of tone you were going for when you yeah, made that not not quite long form I'm, i mean definitely not you know your h-bomber guy opus style thing it was like a 15 minute video about um i think it was a 2013 team raider game just me kind of breathlessly defending it from my imagined <laughs> being like no it's not cringe it's great actually and it's it's gay and everything yeah. you know uh you know like nobody asked nobody cared but i was i was there to sort of defend the game um so yeah, I was trying to keep the tone light while also making a point, but I realised the only part of the process that I took any real pleasure in was writing the script. Um, uh, so that's, that's like why why not just cut out the rest of it? Honestly, I don't really enjoy the idea of being a being like a personality professionally. That seems like a extremely exhausting right. mm-hmm. thing to do, and I'm I'm kind of. I, I respect and slightly fear anyone who can make a living doing that, you know? Yeah, it seems to come a lot more naturally to the Americans, I would say, the Americans, sort of people who work in games yeah. media. It's quite often they are, they put themselves forward as personalities, so they, whereas the Brits are, 
to prefer to hide hide behind the mask. Yes, hide for behind our proofs. Yeah. Uh, yeah, precisely. <laughs> okay, so Grace, um, the format of the podcast is I've asked you to pick the five video games you'd like to put on your perfect video game machine, fictional, but uh, uh, and you have you have picked out uh, five corkers, I think. Um, <laughs> How did you how did you go about making your your choices? What was the criteria you were sort of going for? I apologise because I think as you interview more writers for your uh, sensational podcast, I think these titles are going to probably some of these titles are going to come up again and again. So sorry to the audience in advance, but I think what I I wanted to do was kind of each of these games were games that expanded my understanding of what gaming can do specifically as a storytelling medium. So each of them felt like a kind of a leap up. You know, not actually within the medium, but within my kind of mental framework of the capacity of games to tell stories. So I've kind of ordered them roughly chronologically, and each new one is kind of a a revelation for me. Or it was at the okay. Time. So tell us about your first one, which is from two thousand and seven. What's the what's the game, and why do you love it so much? <laughs> so the, I guess this is, this was my wild card, right? This is Legend of Zelda: Spirit Tracks. <laughs> game that I will take any opportunity to talk about. It's like, again, it's a, it's a weird little baby that I love to defend. I mean, not that Nintendo needs any defending, right? But I, I think it's way too often overlooked in conversations about Zelda the series. But I, also, I am speaking from, a, like, with absolutely no detachment here. Like, I have massive nostalgia for this game. It was uh, one of the first games I played. I think when I was a kid, I wasn't really... A, my parents were video game skeptics, and you know, I didn't get a hold of, like, sort of a console till I was an adult. Well, the first console I was able to have was a beautiful cherry red Nintendo DS uh, from CX secondhand. It was like the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen in the world. I went out and I bought, uh, oh God, what was the precursor to Phantom Hourglass? I got Phantom Hourglass, which I, having knowing nothing about what Zelda was, I just saw it and I was like, oh, there's a little guy and you can run around. Um, and having only played, all of my gaming experience up to that point had been like Flash games online, which, you know, I love the Flash game era, but it was definitely quite a lot of technological limits. And when I realized that the game was like A in 3D and B that you could like run up to people and talk to them and that there would be speech bubbles, <laughs> I was yeah. I was already like, what the heck? Like, you know, imagine my my my, my hair is being blasted <laughs> back by the, the explosion. I was so excited. <laughs> and so obviously I played um, Phantom Hourglass. I loved it. And I discovered to my delight there was a sequel, which was Spirit Tracks, which I went out and got. This was also on the 3DS, is that right? Yeah, it was a three. I think yeah. it was a 3DS follow-up. Um, so I had to get a, I had to get another one. But uh, it, I think Phantom Hourglass maybe hasn't aged as well. But Spirit Tracks is a game that just drips atmosphere so well. It's kind of it. It sort of foreshadows Breath of the Wild in that it's very Ghibli-esque. And uh, it's, it's a game about trains. So it's like, first of all, imagine you're like 10 years old. It's like, okay, right away, we got a princess. You can play as a princess. We have trains. We have the best soundtrack you've ever heard. We have like this overworld that even though like it's tiny, something about it just feels huge and epic. Yeah, God, I love it to bits. I love it. I'm such a Spirit Tracks defender. I will go down. <laughs> I'll die on this hill forever. Best Zelda game. I'd, do you know, I, I have an admission. I don't think I've played Spirit Tracks. Can you um, can you just explain what's the train element there? Because I think people, most people are aware of Legend of Zelda, but maybe not this specific game. So how did the... How did trains get involved? Well, so this is one of the Zelda games where Link has a job, which is always the best. Link should always have a job. And his job in this one is that he's a train conductor. So like your first job is to wake up and get on your little conductor hat and your little conductor uniform and ride away as a kind of teeny tiny queer child. I was immediately sold. It's like, hooray, I can dress up uh, in a train driver's uniform. And then you, the way you navigate around the world is you kind of have points on the map, which are kind of like hubs. And you go from point to point driving your train and you can kind of speed up, slow down, blow your whistle, of course, best thing ever. That's like how you, similar to kind of Wind Waker, which has this you know, way of moving around that I think some people find tedious. You kind of have to have like a, a zen approach to it where it's like, it's not tedious, like the, there is pleasure in the journey. So it's it's kind of about right, right. riding that train, feeling the wind in your imaginary little cell shaded hair and sort of enjoying just the chugging motion of it. And I think there's there's enemies on the tracks as well. But it was mostly just the vibes, right? The vibes are fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, that's so great. 
Link as a conductor. It's great. Yes, and of course you can play as uh, Zelda as well. I think this is the only mainline game where you can do that because the plot has it where she, rather than sort of getting abducted in the typical way that always happens in this game, she gets kind of reverse exorcismed and like pushed out of her own body. And so then she ends up joining Link for the adventure as a ghost and you switch back and forth between playing as him and playing as her and she sort of helps out by like invading suits of armor and you know take it like possessing different things oh okay and like the relationship that they have is just fantastic like it's a game where they actually those two characters actually get to develop a relationship over the course of the story and she has to kind of come into herself and sort of become the hero so it's it's like it's definitely in my opinion the most feminist of all the zelda games as well right right because she's just not she's usually just a damsel right at the end isn't she that you've she's like a prop right whereas this has a when i played it again as an adult i was like as someone who was kind of just about to go through puberty, this story about having to kind of fight to reclaim your bodily autonomy from people who sort of want to use it for their own ends is like, I think, genuinely quite resonant uh, and, and speaks in a really interesting way to the how Zelda functions as a character in the rest of the series. Yes. Um, almost definitely not the intention of the writers. Right? I think it was just a fun plot device, but I'm like, oh, wow, this is really interesting. You guys are sort of commenting on like body dysmorphia and <laughs> feminism and, and coming of age as a young woman in a world that kind of has a preset path for you and you have to follow your own path. And and it's got trains in it. It's just brilliant. It's the best thing ever. Yeah. Games can, they can be really good at that stuff, can't they? It, because they allow us to just try out, um, you know, try out different identities and things like that in a in a very safe, playful environment, don't they? There's a great news story this week. Did you see about the playtesting The Sims? Did you see this? No, I didn't see this. They would run sort of playtests and they would get members of the public to play through The Sims and they would have examples where the men would play the game and they'd be what the developers would be watching them and they'd be doing things oh. like redecorating their bathrooms and stuff like that. And then when the group came back together, some of the men would lie about what they'd been doing in The Sims. <laughs> Rather than like, a, oh yeah, I was just training. All day. Yeah, I was in the gym. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I was doing squats for an hour. Oh, bless them! Oh, those poor guys. Poor, poor guys, but also quite interesting. So tell me, um, yeah, tell me about growing up in in Newcastle then. And uh, you, you said that you weren't really allowed games. Um, how come? How come? I mean, it, it it wasn't that I wasn't allowed them. I think my parents were just extremely suspicious, and and probably with good reason, right? I think. Uh, they were just like, this seems like a vector for addiction and violence and you should read books. And I was like, ah, stinky books, that won't help me with my career. <laughs> Ultimately, it did. Yeah, I, I think for me, it was a case of trying to scrounge scrounge a game wherever I could, whether that was like, you know, playing mini clip in the IT room or, you know, going around to a friend's house. We had an after school club where they had a GameCube. I spent hours like watching people play because I was like a little kid. I wasn't allowed to like play the game when the older kids were playing it but uh yeah all of my video game memories are just me kind of desperately trying to glean any little thing that i could um until i finally got old enough to buy stuff myself but yeah no i had a, i had a great upbringing honestly it was I, I grew up in gosforth which is like the posh boring bit of newcastle uh, hence why i don't have the accent but it's a city that i'll probably end up dying in newcastle one day it's, do you live there now no i, I live in bristol so I, i've kind of wound up post-pandemic moving down the south just to kind of get away but i definitely still have like all northerners my heart kind of yearns to return yeah as much as i love it here yeah so. and wh- uh, what did your parents do uh, my dad is a lecturer uh, and my mum taught, she's retired now, but she taught uh, music at a primary school in Blythe. Mm, right, okay. Uh, so they're both kind of educator-adjacent people, both pretty creative. My dad is extremely, like, professorial and posh. Yeah, what does he, le- what does he lecture <laughs> uh, He's civil, civil engineering. Okay, okay. And uh, uh, Microbes and stuff. And he's super into mountaineering, is that right? And takes you along on that? So tell me about that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, that was uh, a huge part of my childhood was being, but before climbing was cool, right? I, right, Simon, I was climbing before climbing was cool, right? Because I've been climbing since I was four. So my dad started dragging me around. I think we used to go to Sunderland Wall before it opened up in Newcastle. So he would drag me out there and sort of strap me up in a little baby harness and we'd go up and down. And then as soon as I was kind of old enough to hold a belay, I was out. Because my, you know, my mom was like, oh, she, he, he, he didn't really have a good enough excuse to go out you know to get away from his family but if he could turn climbing into family time therefore it was family time and he could like get out every other weekend so i was classic exactly so i was holding the belay for you know doing doing stuff that was in retrospect quite dangerous like 12 years old belaying my you know whatever my quite heavy 40 year old dad (laughs) as he sort of climbs up a rock in the middle of the northumberland countryside no phone signal no one knowing where we are just kind of oh right so you were doing this out in the wild after a certain point oh yeah yeah from i mean yeah like i think when i was kind of in my early teens we started trad climbing on the rock 
and I kind of did that for years and years. Oh, amazing. So that was sort of your substitute for video game, for, for video game thrills. <laughs> it, kept, it kept me busy. Yeah, it kept it kept me busy. I remember it substitute for a lot of things. I remember taking a kind of druggy friend of mine, tried climbing at uni and he could, like came up over the edge of the, you know, huffing and puffing, called himself and he was like, so this is why you don't do drugs. I get it now. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. And then uh, what did you want to do then when you were you a kid? Were you, I mean, you said that you weren't super interested in books. So how did that change for you? To, oh, no, I, everything I was interested. I, I was I was interested. I love books always. I think I was I was more interested in games because it was a kind of forbidden fruit thing. Right. Yeah. Right. But um, when I was really little, loved spirit tracks because of the uniform. Right. So I wanted to be a firefighter when I was a tiny kid. Because then you can dress up, drive around in a truck that goes nino nino and, uh, you know, generally be a badass. But uh, at some point that kind of. Lost interest in that. And then from the age of probably about seven or eight, like pathetically young, I said, I'm going to be a novelist. Uh, really? Amazing. Yeah, really. And, and you know, I cut, no one no one ever really said no. Uh, I never had haters overcome. <laughs> it was more just like, okay, yeah, sure, I guess if that's what you want to do. I never had a better idea. So I ended up just kind of pursuing it <laughs> into, <laughs> into adulthood. Now here we are, like 20 years later. Were you sort of the kind of kid that was writing little short stories and things like that? Yeah, constantly, constantly. I wrote two whole books in high school. Oh, wow. Um, cool. Yeah. <laughs> What sort of yeah, well, science fiction-y or, or? Uh, yeah, a little bit of science fiction, a little bit of fantasy. I don't remember it super clearly now. I think I was just trying to write a, a book that felt like a Ghibli movie, but yeah, definitely a testament to how uncool I was at the time that I <laughs> that I had enough leisure time to write two whole novels. And yeah, well, maybe maybe it's good you didn't have that uh, that that Game Boy Advance. <laughs> that yeah. <might> <laughs> I, I'm kind of grateful for it in retrospect because I was I was such a loser. I definitely would have become like a little a little spotty World of Warcraft player if my parents had let me. Yeah. Instead, I had to become a novelist <laughs> for lack of anything better to do. Right. Why don't we come to your your second game then? Uh, what is it? And uh, tell me about with the first time you encountered it. And uh, it. Th- this is um this is my first extremely basic choice, right? And everyone's going to rule. I think da- I had Dara Brian say I'm going to leave this for someone else. So thanks, Dara. I'm taking it. Uh, my next game is Paul. I went back and forth between Portal 1 and 2. I think they both have their merits. But the reason I landed on Portal 1 was because... So this is a game I sort of heard about. I read about it online. I was on like the 9gag forums. God knows how I got on there. But I read about it there. I heard about it from friends at school. And eventually I was able to kind of convince my uh, my folks to let me buy it on Steam. Obviously, incredible. Like like a picture-perfect frame-by-frame not a single sec, you know, if you in the way that you'd read a book and be like, you know, not a single word was wasted. I think when you play Portal for the first time, you're like every single beat of this game is doing something. But the reason I went for Portal 1 specifically is because Portal 1 has a commentary track. After playing through the game like a hundred times, I sort of was desperate enough for more stuff that I went back and I played it with the commentary track on, which is they do this fascinating thing where you can kind of walk into these little nodules, which will float in the level. And then um, a little audio track will play from one of the one of the people who worked on the game talking about, you know, the level that you're in right now. I forgot they did yes. that. That's so good, Why isn't it? Why don't more people wow. do that? It, it was fantastic. And it's such a good educational tool because I was able to see for the first time, like, oh, this is, this is something that people make. Like, there are human beings behind this and there's, you know, thought put in. I think that was where my kind of game critic brain started to really grow because I realised that, like the amount of the depth of the work and the thought that went into creating the experience I just had. Yeah, absolutely incredible. Yeah, I would, how good would that be like in some From Software games, by the way, to like have oh, a little, can uh, you imagine? have a little uh, explanation of what's going on. <laughs> I mean, it, that I would, I would love to see it. I, I, I think for those games, I almost wouldn't want the mystery to be. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. There's something like Portal that I think is so novelistic, and so tight, like it, it really, it's a fantastic game to dissect. 
almost as much as it is to play. Yeah, and each of the puzzle chambers is sort of like a like a little chapter, mm-hmm. right, in a book, isn't it? And, uh, but, and because you've got the GLaDOS is talking to you as you go through it, and that relationship's evolving from chamber to chamber. So it's, yeah, like you say, it's quite novelistic, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. very linear, and it, it does kind of, it paints very... It, it sort of paints a broad picture using very few strokes, which is something that I kind of like to do in my own writing from a will building perspective is, is sort of give people little glimpses and hints, you know, who's sitting behind the frosted glass window, that kind of thing. And it opens up so many more questions and really grips you into yeah. that world. Yeah, it's interesting. I think, uh, you know, in my work writing about games, I've always been in favour of games that give open solutions to players, oh. whereby, you know, it's sort of a bit of a playpen and it's, you feel clever for having devised a solution. But Porter's sort of the, the counter-argument to that. Oh. It's just highly authored. There's like one way to do everything, basically. And, uh, yes. and uh, you know, you have to tread the path that the designers have laid down for you. But I guess when the writing is so good yes. and the puzzles are so good. And the design is so good. Yeah, they do a fun... It, it sort of always... It always feels like your idea, even though yes. everything has been kind of pre-planned. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, very nice. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So tell me, um, tell me about how you, you know, you mentioned there coming online, as it were, as a, as a game critic, uh, that part of your brain. How did you formalise that and actually start sort of, you know, getting paid work to uh, do that? I wrote a lot of really sycophantic emails, I think was how I, <laughs> was how I got my way in. <laughs> uh, I, I yeah. did a little bit of games writing for Congre, which was a uni magazine um, at the University of East Anglia. So I wrote a couple of game reviews. I think I reviewed Return of the Oprah Din, uh, five stars, obviously. Yes. Um but then I, when I was in lockdown for the first time, I think when I, after I graduated, I couldn't get a job. My plan had been to go into publishing, not particularly because I wanted to work in publishing, but because if you don't want to be an English teacher, that's the only opportunity. That's the only thing that people will tell you to do if you have a degree in lit. But I couldn't get it. I couldn't get a degree. I couldn't get a job because it's a horrible industry to break into. And so then I was kind of at a loose end, working a series of like catering jobs. And when the first lockdown hit, I found myself with you know more time on my hands. And I spent a lot of time thinking during that time, like what I really wanted to do, you know, nothing like scraping plates eight hours a day to make you really reflect on what you want to do with your life, right? I was like, what I actually want to do is break into video games. Like that's where my, that's where my passion, my burning inferno of passion truly lies is in that industry. And uh, I try, I, you know, I tried to get internships at various places. I looked into narrative design. I, I couldn't see any way to do it. And the thing that ended up working for me in the end was just like, I just wrote to an editor and was like, look, I have an idea. And I sent a sample and they were like, oh, this is actually good. And then, you know, once I had my kind of toe in the door, I was able to shove my foot in a little bit more. Yeah. And I had an enormous stroke of luck early on, which is that I met a mutual friend of ours, um, Chris Donlin. I was sort of passed his email as like, hmm, you should, you know, this isn't great for me, but you should talk to Chris. And he did the most amazing thing ever, which is that he said, he wrote back to me and said, this isn't very good. <laughs> he, said, he said, this isn't good. Here's what's wrong with it try again in a couple of weeks and that was like the most amazing <laughs> opportunity anyone could have given me and that you know blew open all the rest of the doors because all of a sudden I had the sort of I had a little data point and I knew how to how to kind of alter my approach mm-hmm. uh, and so then I did that it worked for him and you know then I was I was more or less in from then oh that's amazing yeah yeah um, Chris Donlin is a 
features editor, I think, or, or maybe a different title at Eurogamer, and is also yes. writes nonfiction f- fiction books and is just one of the best people. And, yes, uh, he really is. I'm, I'm waiting for you to get him on the podcast. You need to, <laughs> like, if you, if you know, you know. Everyone loves Donlan. He's a total, um, he's like the pappy of the industry. Yeah, he really is. And that's so good to, yeah, to, like you say, to get that feedback is actually quite rare in, um, in uh, s- specialist press writing, I suppose, mm-hmm. you know, it's you know they, you don't often get your work back with red pen all over it as you as Completely. you might do at some other outlets. But uh, <laughs> yeah, in, in video games, it doesn't tend to work like that. So it can just take a really long time to learn because there's not many mentors around for for various reasons. So. Because, yeah, because people don't last long, and because the money's terrible, and everyone's busy. Like taking the time to mentor is a hugely generous thing to do, especially in this industry. Yeah. Indeed, shout out, Chris. We love you. <laughs> love you, Chris. Love you, Donlan. Okay, let's uh, let's come to your your third game here. Can you tell us about it? All right. I think if 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 we're imagining like a line graph of like different bumps that kind of blow my mind with each, you know, you know, like Spirit Dragon blows my mind a little bit, and then Paul one blows my mind a little bit. I think we've got to like triple that spike for Undertale because nothing, no game that I've played before or since has altered my brain chemistry the way Undertale did. I was meditating on this all morning because a couple of times as a critic, I've like pitched pieces on Undertale. Mostly got rejected because I think traditional games people kind of don't really know what to do with this game. And the ones that got accepted were really bloody difficult to write because I struggled to put into words why this experience was so mind-blowing for me at the time. I think I was, so I was in my late teens at this point, I was about 17, you know. I, I sort of picked it up. For those of you who don't know, Undertale has a kind of quite basic, pixelati style and uh, I picked it up mostly because it looked like one of those I mentioned earlier I used to play these free flash games and it looked like a free flash game and I was like okay it's cheap it looks like something I'm familiar with let's just dive in because a lot of people were saying it's good and obviously I ended up getting so much more than I bargained for and I think yeah oh god it's incredible so let's uh, let's try and describe it to people who maybe haven't played it so it's sort of a it's an, a Japanese RPG if we're still allowed to use that term <laughs> or an RPG from Japan <laughs> <laughs> whatever we're allowed to say uh, but it also it sort of subverts some of those conventions yes. how would you how would you describe it uh, well yeah I guess it's it's formulated like a JRPG I think the guy who made it is um, I think Toby Fox is from the States yeah but mm. it is formulated in that way and it's a uh, it's a game that combines some of the trappings of a JRPG with like bullet hell combat. So you have combat encounters with various characters uh, where you kind of have to dodge projectiles on the screen. And then between those encounters, you kind of explore the underworld uh, of Undertale, which is a uh, a sort of subterranean landscape filled with monsters that have been locked away by the humans. And you kind of fall down, you're a little kid. And you get there, and so that's kind of that's the story on the surface, right? You're a little kid that's got trapped yes. in this world of monsters, and you have to fight your way out. But obviously, but that's like that's the top layer of the iceberg, and it goes deeper and deeper and deeper. It's it's kind of a game that is directly, and again, I think if you haven't played it, just play it. I don't want to give too much away, but it is a game that is directly in conversation with not just the character, but with the player, and it asks some really interesting and deep questions about what we owe to the worlds that we escape into like at what point does this stop become at what point are you not just playing with dollies at what point are you doing something more serious and so it has this kind of very light fluffy side it's obviously enormous fun to play but at the same time it has this extremely dark undercurrent and it's very very challenging especially if you're someone like me who has invested a lot of personal time into escapist entertainment and into kind of just trying to not be where I was. Having a game that kind of looks that squarely in the eye, takes it seriously and forces you to take it seriously and think, okay, how do I navigate this world responsibly? What do I owe to these characters that I've allowed to become real in my own head? I hope that wasn't too roughly. <laughs> so you see what I mean? It's hard to talk about Undertale. It's no, hard. No, that's brilliant. 
Yeah, that's it's so interesting, isn't it, that question? Because a, a lot of um, advocates for video games have traditionally spent a lot of time saying, you know, oh, they're just images on a screen. Like, the, the we can do whatever we want to them. There's no moral dimension to that. Because, of course, that's the argument that says against screen violence, isn't it? It's to say, well, you know, if you're doing things to characters on a screen that you think are real and you're doing horrible things then then that can have a moral component so but but yeah i suppose undertale is taking that uh taking that sort of traditional argument that gamers make and saying actually wait what if the way you treat things on the screen could affect you in in other ways you know than making you into it it's that tension between the advocate and the critic where the advocate wants to kind of give games you know the freedom to do whatever they want and the best way to do that is say that it doesn't matter whereas a critic wants to engage with it on a deeper level and say actually no it does matter on a certain level and like mm-hmm. there is um one of one of the ways you can approach undertale is like with the maximum amount of violence possible this is a game where it's possible to play it without killing anyone if you play it and kill everyone that's called the genocide run and it will permanently alter how the game treats you even in um uh, you know even if you save and reload the game will remember what you did i've never touched the genocide run in undertale i've, ne- I've never even killed a single character because to me call it silly call it you know too much imagination whatever it feels too real. Mm, yeah, yeah. Even if it's not, it feels real. And I think the fact that it was able to make me realize how intensely I take these worlds, it just blew my mind. And that was when I realized I was like, oh, books are obsolete. <laughs> <laughs> I remember, I remember sitting in my that. computer. <laughs> no, I remember sitting in my desktop and being like, what am I doing writing these? And like, I'd probably just finished my second book and I was like, what am I even doing? Like, Toby Fox is kind of a, he's a god to me and I'm, I'm just sitting here playing with my dolly. I was like, it was an incredible experience. There's definitely room in the world for both, yes. I think. Yes, they're, not, they're not mutually uh... exclusive, but I, I think it, it made me respect games on a, on a much deeper level. Mm, right, right, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, mentioning the, the genocide run and the way in which we play games that have a, they give you moral choices because I, I remember seeing a tweet, I think it was from uh, Greg uh Kasavin, or Kasavin, I'm not quite sure how to see his name, who um who's a used to be a critic and is now now makes now makes video games and he was saying that he picked up his save from Final Fantasy, um Final Fantasy Tactics wow. and then replayed that again like twenty years later. And his run through subsequently, he made all of the identical same decisions. <laughs> like which su- suggests that like the way we behave in video games is sort of quite close to like how we are as people. Well, you'd say, but there, there are friends of mine who are, I guess, more mainstream gamers who, who get to do everything in Undertale. It's like, oh yeah, you've got to, they, they, they play the sort of like ultra-violent version of the game just because it's there. And it's like, well, I paid for it and this is part of the experience, so I should do it. And I'd look at them and I'm like, you sociopath. <laughs> Why would you? But also, but also the same question can apply to Toby Fox, the creator. It's like, you're the sociopath as well. Yeah. Why would you put half of your game behind like an, uh, uh, behind like a morally bankrupt paywall? Like you must be this dead inside to enter. It's a really like, it, I kind of, I love him for it, but I hate him for it as well. Right. Like why, why are you, why are you cutting off my access to so much of your art by virtue of the fact that I can't bear to even look at it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, these are some big questions. Why would a why would a creator of a world like allow for extreme evil in it? Is you know one of the really big questions yes, and, and, in life. But you can look at it through the prism of games in quite an interesting way. Exactly. Can't you, so. Well, like he's done it even more with Delta Rune, the follow up, where it's like the only way that like there is an extremely dark version of that game as well. But it's so like the way of getting to it is so obtuse; it could only be discovered through like internet collaboration, right? Like figuring out the really weird and specific steps you have to do to get the kind of Snowgrave run, which is a sort of genocide run of Deltarune. It had to happen on forums. It had to happen with the internet collaborating to discover the way that you can actually torture these lovely characters. And so it's it's like this incredible work of like, you know, almost performance art of like why why can people not resist the urge to just dig a little deeper? Like why can't we leave leave it alone? Interesting. Interesting. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, great game, funny, happy skeleton game. Go play it. <laughs> right, let's uh, let's talk about your your book then. Um, I mean, I, again, like you, I you know, you're you're quite young to have a have a book out with one of the big five publishers like this. How did you go around about getting an agent and selling your your first sci-fi? But this is obviously a dream for thousands of people across the world, and uh, you know, you've made it work. How did that all happen? Same to the games industry thing. Sycophantic emails. Uh, <laughs> I, I stumbled across uh, my agent on Twitter, well, job hunting on Twitter in the summer of 2020. Again, 
uh, a very a very quiet time <laughs> a quiet time to be a bartender. I had I had a lot of extra time on my hands. Um, I had I you know I, I finished the first draft of the book in the kind of beautiful Scottish sunshine. I was living in Edinburgh at the time. It was an incredible summer. I had all that time on my hands. I finished the book. I was going for big long runs, and I thought, you know, I think my initial plan was to spend quite a lot of time editing it. I was sort of impatient, so I started hunting around for agents anyway. Yeah, I got lucky and I, I struck gold, not necessarily on my first try, but I think within my first handful of tries, I just happened to find the person who, probably the one agent in the world who would give this book the best shot that he could, right? Which is uh, Zoe Platt. Shout out to Zoe. And so once I had, I mean, obviously there was a huge amount of hard work after that and a lot of uncertainty and it took years right this is this has been the really weird thing to talking to people about frontier because i wrote i finished that book when i was 21 and now i'm 24 uh-huh. which is you know not a huge amount of time in the grand scheme of things but to me it feels like centuries in terms of who i am now versus who i was then yeah 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 but yeah I, I i think i got lucky i just found the perfect similar to with don then i found the perfect person who was able to kind of see what i was trying to do with that extremely weird book and find someone out you know find the right kind of home for it ultimately did you send the whole manuscript in or did you just send the first chapter or how did you go about it first chapter initially and then the whole book a word of advice anyone who's listening who wants to be a novelist you should probably finish your first book before you start writing to agents because they will want to see the whole thing if they like the first chapter (laughs) if you don't have the whole thing they'll be like well scrabbling around exactly (laughs) yeah yeah, don't do that to yourself um because this is why the whole industry is laced with privilege, right? Because you have to have the free time in the first place to write a fucking book. Right, right. Yeah, interesting. And uh, just get, tell us, uh, tell us about the book. How? Do, what's your? I mean, I'm sure you've given a few of these kind of <laughs> interviews now. What's your? Uh, what's your sort of thirty second pitch for oh, it? Oh, I mean, my yeah. I guess my my one line pitch is if I want to shut the conversation down with people who are just kind of asking <laughs> to be nosy, I say it's a it's a gay space western. It's got cowboys and laser guns, and they go, oh, that's nice, and then we change the subject. Perfect. I think the way I pitched it in more detail would be as a space western anthology it's set in a future version of the earth which has been ruined by climate change most of the planet's population has left but a couple of people a sort of cult refuse to leave because they worship the earth right and they're like climate change is divine punishment we've just got to stick it out that happens 300 years pass and then the first outsider in you know big quotes first outsider comes to the planet gets kind of stranded uh, knocked out of the ship and then has to kind of traverse this sort of retro futuristic anarchistic barren wasteland planet trying to find trying to find a way back to a partner and so the story kind of takes place in this um, it has a kind of anthology format where each chapter is like its own little short story and we see this character in a lot of different contexts before we kind of finally get to see her as herself and that's that's more or less how it plays out each chapter kind of has its own almost like its own little genre we have like a murder mystery at one point like a coming of age story like a thriller uh, a lot of people die in the first chapter yada yada um and then it kind of builds through those little narratives into something bigger overall and a lot of people hate it <laughs> well, not a, okay not a lot of people hate it some people find it extremely weird and some people love it yeah it was it, oh, well i love it i'm on the i'm in the love it camp oh, thanks. and uh, w- one of the things i really enjoy about it is i uh, you know science fiction writers can have a lot of fun with names and you're no exception you've got um <laughs> i'm just gonna, I know what like, you're gonna let's say. go through some of the characters there. so we've got <laughs> bolton strid mary marikova Hattie Warbler. How did you go about sort of, you know, finding some of these uh, names? I'm, no one ever asks me about the name, Simon. It's my favourite thing to talk about. So Bolton Street. Okay, let's go. <laughs> uh, Bolton Street is a, uh, it's a river in Yorkshire that is extremely, it, it, the Bolton Street is like a, a teeny tiny river that kills like 10 people a year because it's so deceptively deep. So it's, yes, it's this river. I've seen about yeah, that. So yes. it's like this yeah, river yeah, yeah. that people fall into. So I thought, minor twist for chapter one, that he ends up being an extremely dangerous character. So I kind of foreshadowed that with the name. Hattie Warbler gained, I think, just the perfect name for that person. I don't know how else to put it. <laughs> She's great. <laughs> There's a character in the the one I thought you were going to say was a character in Chapter Two called Emollient de Cream, right? Yeah. <laughs> which, as a as a lifetime eczema sufferer, uh, gave me a lot of satisfaction because the whole point of him is that he's like a charlatan, right? So he's given himself a name uh, uh, that sounds fancy, but in fact, it's just uh, <laughs> it's perfect. It's eczema cream. But yeah, I think genuinely that's like like mask off the, the only part of writing that i completely enjoy without any caveats or stress is inventing names <laughs> i enjoy it way too much yeah well you 
you have you have a talent for it, I would say. So, <laughs> okay, let's um, let's come to your fourth game, uh, Grace, uh, which is from 2016. So you were probably I don't know seven years old when you played this or something. But <laughs> <laughs> I was in my first year at uni. I think I was, okay, I was brand, right. brand new. Um, <laughs> it was. What's the game? The ba- the game is Hyperlight Drifter. Hyperlight Drifter is, I, I think, because I was I was thinking about this list, and I, I had a, I had a couple different things kind of vibe for this spot. I thought about doing Obudin, um, which is another game that kind of does really interesting things with storytelling. But I think in terms of games that just brought me so much pure joy, while also delivering something that I hadn't seen before, I think Hyperlight Drifter really stands up there. It's a game that tells its story entirely without words. It's, it's done with visuals and atmosphere and music. And um, it's also probably the first, I would say, like the first difficult game I played because I'd never been, I'd, I hadn't had that training as like a capital G gamer because I, you know, I started getting games quite late and I sort of leaned towards more narrative stuff. And this is the first time that I realized the kind of challenge could be part of the text. Yeah. And if you say that to a you're like, yeah girl like dark souls has been around for te- like a decade like we know that this can be you know pathologic you know wake up but for me this was the first time when i realized that it's a game about struggling and i, I understand it was kind of created as a metaphor for chronic illness uh, I, I found that out afterwards but it's you know even without knowing that you can tell it's a game about navigating a world that is not really built for you but at the same time is extremely has you know a huge amount of beauty within it and uh, it, it feels very alien and barren and hostile but at the same time enormously colorful I, I can't really describe I think it's it's a game again like I'm struggling to find the words for it because it's a game that doesn't need words it's a game that you can just kind of dive into and experience and it, it does all of this whilst also being like having like the best like tightest combat that I've you know that I've ever played like it's so much fun to play and it's so crunchy it's so stylish as well as yes it? yeah really handsome game I think the handsome is a great word for it yeah and it's it's um full of secrets and full of Things that feel just out of reach, and then you reach them, and it, yeah, it's, it just it works. I think on every level, it's it's like uh, it's satisfying to play, and, it, and it's rich to look at, and yet it kind of has a like pulsing hot heart at the center that you literally have to kind of dig into in order to to win. Ultimately, definitely my favorite game about death. One of my favorite games about death. <laughs> yeah, wonderful. Yeah, it's a, it's an American team, isn't it? That made that made it, and um, Heart Machine. Yeah. yeah. And they, it sort of sits with me, like I guess the like Bastion and some of those other American-made games that are really drawing upon Japanese game conventions, but they're layering in some subtext and yeah. um, you know, obviously that's a that's a been a big thing in indie games, hasn't it? But um, yeah, it's a really great example of one of those games. It sort of takes those first principles of Japanese games of the nineties and then puts a puts a sort of adult spin on them in some way. Yes. Interesting themes. And They're that. dealing with, I think, quote unquote mature themes are extremely difficult to tackle. And a lot of, and, and I can say this because I'm immersed within this world now, a lot of indie game writing is really bad because writing is a skill unto itself that is separate from other things. And I think people kind of, they often lean a bit too hard into twee or they lean a bit too hard into edgy. And I think this is a game that says just like it says a lot by saying nothing. And I really appreciate the restraint. <laughs> As much as everything else, I and you know, and having played a lot of indie games since then, now I, I think it still holds up. It's not something where I look back at it and I'm like, oh, like other games have kind of iterated on this better since. I still think it's kind of the, maybe a standout within that world still. Yes, indeed. So we, I mean, you mentioned there your your work in in independent games, and as well as to being a a, game, a video game critic, you also do some indie game PR, as I mentioned in the in the introduction. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, how is it for, for you sitting on both sides of that divide, both writing about games and trying to get other people to write about them as well? Yeah, it's it's tricky. I mean, like, I, I think PR is, is what we have on the site, but, like, I do a huge amount of content creation, a lot of emails, and kind of I've worked a little bit in the publisher side of things as well, like a bit of business stuff. Huge friends kind of do everything. It's It's been a great place to kind of learn the ropes. 
Yeah, and I think initially when I when I first joined the company, I was hoping to keep myself keep both wheels running, um, and I wasn't able to do that because I just have a limited amount of time in the day, sadly. And this is you know the tragedy of it is I think this is a choice that a lot of people are having to make now is that I was not able to see a really sustainable future for myself as a games journalist full time. Mm. I was yeah. getting to an age where I wanted to kind of have independence. I wanted to move out of my bloody parents' house and do something with my life. And I couldn't do that on a games journalist budget. And as much as I love doing this and as much as I love talking about games, it didn't feel like it was worth giving up my freedom to do that. And so I, I sort of made the choice early on. I was like, okay, I have to pursue a more... I kind of have to go over to the dark side, as I think some people put it, and pursue a more commercial yeah. edge. Sustainable, let's say. Sustainable, yeah, <laughs> precisely. Yeah. But I got lucky, you know, I, I sort of wound up in this company that is so... We're like a really small team of people who are frank and funny and, you know, we're run by blazing socialists uh, who really put their money where their mouth is in terms of being a nice place to work. And I also get to talk to developers all the time, which is something I didn't get to do a lot especially on the publishing side I'm, I'm sort of seeing the mechanics of how a game is made in real time much more yeah. and that's been a total delight yeah. for me yeah yeah and uh, you know lots of people who who make video games listen to this podcast and they probably might be interested to see for you know with your unique set of experience i think what what concrete things can teams do perhaps to help get their games noticed what what have you seen that definitely works in 2023 uh well i mean 2023 is a hot you know it because we work in digital marketing, everything changes so much. TikTok has been a huge part of our campaign. Like when I say content creation, like I literally spend a huge amount of my day every day making TikToks. Really? Between like I, I write the press releases, I write the Steam pages, and I make a whole lot of TikToks because that's a growth platform where there are, you know, it's easy to reach new people. I think on a on a more basic level, we tend to build our strategy around wish lists because, you know, for most indie developers, Steam is like the, the easiest place to go sell a game. And if you want to sell the game on Steam, the easiest way to tell Steam that you're worth promoting within the algorithm is to get a lot of wish lists, right? So I think it's a lot of being quite frank with yourself and crunching the numbers and thinking, okay, how do, how well does this actually convert in terms of people going and kind of, not pre-ordering, but like in, clicking a button that says they want to play my game. And when you break down the stats, it can be quite brutal. I mean, looking at it as a journalist, I've, I've really had to swallow the facts that like articles don't sell games. Um which I, I probably suspected beforehand, but going into it has, has been a, a tough thing to metabolize. You know, articles are about prestige and it's it's word of mouth and it can do a lot of good for you. But in terms of like, you'd almost be better spending all your time just like making Reddit and Imager and TikTok posts and trying to get, a, you know, a review for your game. So yeah, it's, it's tough working with all those brutal realities and it's tough working with developers who are kind of you're meeting them almost, you're always meeting them at the most vulnerable point, right? These are people who've worked on things for often multiple years, often on their own, and it's finally about to be kind of midwifed out into the world and you have to kind of guide them through that process while at the same time being very real with them about like the prospects and what's actually going to happen. So yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. I love the people I work with. It's surprisingly emotionally draining at sometimes, I would say. Yeah, I guess where you work, as you say, you're working with people's babies yes, are you really <laughs> precisely and uh, so yeah there's high stakes everywhere aren't there so uh-huh. um okay are you saying that i should start a tiktok grace for the podcast because <laughs> i mean if you want i think it might it, be too late for me no i i, I, I simon <laughs> i think you're doing just fine i would say i, I think okay. you, people people know your stuff is good if you want to have a bunch of zoomers coming in and being like asking you the same three questions over and over then sure but yeah i think you're good <laughs> thank you okay let's um why don't we why don't we come to your your fifth game fifth and final game there so which is a, a classic it's actually come up a couple of times on the podcast so yeah um, no, i apologize no no you don't need to and i think it will come up many many more times because it's uh i think every time you interview a writer this is going to be on the list so tell us uh, tell us about the game and what it means to to you personally uh the next game is of course disco elysium
uh, Disco Elysium is a sad drunk man. You know what I? You know what I'll do? I'm gonna. I'm because I, I don't really know what has been said about this so far on the podcast, but I will. I will say it through the medium of country music. <laughs> so year 2022, uh, I was. I I had really intense not funny depression like clinical bad can't leave the house depression for like maybe a you know a year to two years stole a lot of time out of my life and and in that time i discovered mid-century country music which is the music of divorced alcoholic overweight misshaven uh, vaguely creepy richly unhappy men struggling and struggling to to find a little bit of redemption in in an extremely bleak and unforgiving world and finding beauty and humor in that process and that's what Disco Elysium is baby (laughs) Disco Elysium is like just pain 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 but isn't it so funny (laughs) that's perfect so wait who's your who is your your favorite um country artist I mean in terms of like who who I would compare to the the protagonist from Disco Elysium George Jones He's you know, a, a, sad, a sad drunk, but um, I mean, my favorite is Tom T. Hall because he was like a guy who he was like a novelist songwriter who could write a whole novel in a song. Uh, I, would, I would recommend him. Bobby Gentry as well. Yeah, Disco Elysium. It's it's it will you will play it and other game writing will turn to ash in your mouth, uh, like you've tasted the ambrosia of the gods. You come out of that world and suddenly everything just reads like shit. <laughs> yeah, it is a very very well written game. Do what sort of so it's also a game that allows allows you as a player to approach the game in various different ways and mm-hmm. be different kinds of people. What kind of what kind of player are you? Oh, it's funny you were saying about how you know people play the game and make the same choices every time. That's definitely me with Disco Elysium. I always I always just max out my empathy first and foremost because what I want to do is ha- I want to what I want to do is excavate all these amazing characters that they've written, and I also want to beat the game. I think the the best way to do that is to stock up on empathy right away. So, yeah, I, I'm like a very empathetic communist trying to make amends every single time, which I suspect is the case for a lot of people. Yeah, uh, I mean, perfect. What a perfect advert for that game, I think. There's <laughs> nothing to be added. Anyway, uh, stream um, stream the Grand Tour by George Jones and play Disco Elysium and uh, go to therapy, everyone. That's that's how I survived that, that year of my life. That's how you got through it. <laughs> very good. Okay, well, let's, uh, Grace, let's go through your choices. So, on your console, you've got The Legend of Zelda, Spirit Tracks, yeah. Portal, Ooh. Undertale, uh-huh. Hyperlight Drifter, uh-huh. and Disco Elysium. Amen. Brilliant, brilliant stuff. What a great console. Have you got a name for your console that we can use to market it to the world? I talked such a big game about coming up with names, and I, I couldn't come up with anything good for this one, so we're going to have to call it the Story Box. Very nice. Story Box, okay. Coming to a WH Smith near you. Soon. <laughs> oh God, no, they didn't. But yeah, maybe a Waterstones if you're lucky. A oh, Waterstones. Oh yeah, of course. Okay, <laughs> perfect. Then we can we can bundle it with a copy of your novel as well. So how's that? Yeah, God, got it's got to find some way to shift a few bloody copies <laughs> yeah. of that thing. Okay, so well, uh, Grace, before I let you go, I just wanted to ask you. You mentioned in your email to me that you're now sort of again like in your in your way of um, mastering different different roles in this industry you're now writing a script for a game as well an upcoming indie game called Europa can you can you tell us about that what's it like writing a game what sort of freedom do you have to do that uh bloody hard <laughs> is what i would say <laughs> you uh, yeah no this this is my kind of obviously i have another book out next year which is kind of done now right. but i i made puppy eyes at my uh, the pub- head of publishing in our company until he agreed to ask the <laughs> Helder, the creator of Europa. So it's a game that we're publishing, uh, hopefully going to be out next year uh, or this year, maybe. And they were looking to hire a scriptwriter for it. And I just said, you know, you'd, you'd save a lot of money if you just let me do it. <laughs> so that's been my first kind of very gentle dip into narrative design. Yeah. And it's instantly so much harder than I could have ever imagined. <laughs> Even though this is super easy, right? Like this is this is like a I'm working with a lovely team of people. The game is super linear. You it's literally just like picking up pages of a notebook as you go along and that's the story. Uh-huh. But it's it's still probably been, you know, like I think writing a book is very grueling, but this has actually required so much more like cognitive acrobatics to figure out how to tell a story in tandem with all these other elements and in tandem with all these other creative people, right? Because I'm coming in, Helda has been working on this in his spare time for like almost five years now. And so for me to come in and be like, um, actually, I think that you should do this instead. 
it's it's a it's a team working challenge. It's a narrative challenge, but I'm loving oh, it. Oh, great! The game is beautiful. It's it's like the most gorgeous looking thing you've ever seen. It's 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 very heavily inspired by uh, Lapita Castle in the Sky. Have you seen that movie? Yes, I have. So yeah. it's it's kind of using some of the aesthetic trappings of that film uh, with a kind of journey like linear jetpacky gameplay, and we're telling the story of a sort of a father and his son, and also of our responsibility to the planet in tandem. And yeah, go ahead, go ahead and wish list everyone. Click that wish list button. Do it, do it. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. And the uh, the book. This is your call to action. <laughs> the the book that's out next year. Have you got a title for that yes, yet? That's agreed and everything. It's floating hotel. Floating hotel. That's what brilliant. It's and is it part of the same universe? Yes, as Frontier? it's um it's set in the same universe, but it's kind of its own story. So if you haven't, if you didn't pick up frontier you can pick this up and you know to read it totally fresh and have a good time this is brilliant well people do have time to go and pick up frontier and they should go and do that and they should uh wish list europa and they should also read your excellent words yes, and they should subscribe to this podcast and leave it five stars <laughs> reviews and uh follow simon on twitter while we're bigging each other up thank you uh grace it's been lovely to to meet you and to um just hear your thoughts on these games thank you so much for coming on i really appreciate it yeah no, i really enjoyed it thank you so much for having me Grace Curtis, everyone, what a thoroughly lovely chat that was, and a thoroughly lovely person, Grace is too. It was great to hear her story and everything that she is up to. I have a feeling we're going to hear lots more from Grace in the years to come. For now, though, you can go and buy her new book, Frontier. It's out with Hot Escape. It's out in the UK. I think it's out in the US as well. Uh, it's a great book. It's both sort of pulpy and literary, uh, which is a good combo in my book and um, well worth your time. And also, of course, you can check out Europa, the game that she has been contributing some writing to. And as she said, please go along and wish list that uh, if it takes your fancy. Uh, also, I've got a feeling that uh, secondhand prices for uh, The Legend of Zelda Spirit Tracks are going to go up on eBay <laughs> after this comes out. I actually did go and have a look myself and it's it's already quite... Uh, I mean, it's going to set you back pretty much what it cost brand new in the early 2000s when it came out, so uh, about £50 at the moment. So, But it does look like a really special game and... Um, Grace, she's got a very fine way of articulating the appeal of games, as we heard in all of her chats about her choices. So, yeah, go and check out Spirit Tracks as well, as well as her other four choices. You can follow Grace on Twitter and on Instagram. You'll find her easily enough. Um, it is, I think she's Gratchina Writes. Uh, so, but if you just search for Grace Curtis Frontier Twitter, it'll come up. Uh, you can follow me as well at Simon Parkin on Twitter and you can also follow the podcast at My Perfect Console with the O's removed. Throughout the month of April, we're doing two episodes a week. That's a pretty high work rate, but I had quite a few backed up and eager to get them out. And then I think in May, we'll probably return to a one a week rhythm. So I'm not quite sure when in April uh, this episode's coming to you, but just hold tight for some other fantastic guests and we've got some great people who i am recording with in coming weeks as well they're very excited to share those chats with you i'm eager to sort of get the balance right as well between sort of people who write about games people who work in other industries but also some classic game creators as well so there's going to be some more of those you know i in another part of my life i write history books uh, or non-fiction narrative non-fiction books and so I spend a lot of time listening to oral histories recorded in the 1960s 70s and 80s with people you know about their their experience sort of social history and it's just so important to get things on tape I think people's stories and so I'm very keen to do that uh, to try and just record people like Hank Rogers like some other guests that we've had Shahid Ahmad Sir Ian Livingston we've got coming up uh, if it's not been out Phil Fish so these are some of the episodes that you've already heard but there's lots more of those coming where those came from as well so eager to sort of just get some of the some of the interesting anecdotes and history of this still 
sort of young medium uh, on tape for posterity reasons. Uh, if you would like to support these endeavours financially, head to Acast Plus where you can become an early access supporter. It helps to keep the podcast sustainable. I don't know, I've been sort of mulling over whether to do a Patreon or not and offer some bonus content, but I'm not quite sure what form that would take. And it's already quite a lot of work as it is. So <laughs> if you are enjoying this and would like to show your support in some way, then please do head to Acast Plus. And for uh, £3 a month, which is less than the cost of a suit of horse armour in oblivion, uh, I might find some other things that that's cheaper than some other DLC. But anyway, it's a bargain, I think. And you will get your episodes 24 hours before the general public and ad-free. Okay, that's enough for that. Be back next week or in a few days, one or the other, whenever this comes out, with a new guest with their five games and one more perfect console. See you then. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.